0: Hey everyone, my name is Jeff Oaks. I'm one of the pastors on staff and I'm glad to share this message with you today. Have you ever faced an assignment or a job that overwhelmed you because of the sheer size or scope of the task? I was once asked to help prepare meals, work in the kitchen, clean up afterward for a church leadership retreat. And I was willing to consider this request because I'd actually attended the retreat myself in previous years. I found it to be Super helpful, it was informative and encouraging, provided me a great chance to be refreshed. And so I thought to myself, well, I'll go help out in the kitchen and then I'll get to participate and enjoy the retreat along with everyone else. And so without much further thought about it, I agreed to the request. What I had not considered was just how overwhelming the task of preparing meals and cleaning up for 120 people actually is. It is an all-consuming job for an experienced hospitality service professional, let alone for someone as unprepared as I was. Pancakes for 120, hospitality settings for 120, sandwiches for 120, pasta for 120, dirty dishes piling up for 120 people every meal. I should have known that it would take up all of my time. I mean, from the 5 a.m. wake-up call to begin breakfast prep, all the way through mid-afternoon cleanup after the lunch service, there wasn't a spare moment to enjoy the retreat. And in the few hours before the dinner prep began, I found myself so exhausted. I didn't want to do anything but lie down and rest. And once we finished cleaning up for dinner, I had no interest in the retreat whatsoever. I mean, instead I found myself resenting the fact that I had agreed to help out at all. I had not properly assessed the amount of work an effort that would be involved. Not only did I not get to enjoy the retreat, but I left it feeling depleted and regretted my thoughtlessness. I had underestimated the amount of work involved and I was ill-prepared. What do you do when you're faced with a large work assignment or a daunting task? Do you run and hide? Do you complain or sulk? Do you find yourself getting resentful like I was? It's easy to be demoralized when we're faced with a huge task or assignment. But today, we're going to learn from the example of someone who chose a different response. When confronted with an overwhelming responsibility, this person chose a different path. Last week, Nathan uh, introduced us to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an Israelite man who was serving as the cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes. He was the king's wine taster, but that was actually a rather unfortunate assignment. It was not making sure that the wine tasted good, it was to make sure the wine wasn't poisoned. I mean, yikes. Nehemiah was actually in a position of great trust with the king because of that role, and he was serving him daily when he learned about the disaster that had befallen his hometown of Jerusalem. The city lay in ruins and he was heartbroken by this news. Israel was a nation in ruins. All of their very best and brightest had been hauled away into captivity in the wake of a great disobedience. God allowed them to be decimated by their enemies. It had been decades since this took place. But for these exiles who are living far away from home, there was always this hope of returning one day. But now, faced with this terrible news about how bad things are back in Jerusalem, Nehemiah realizes that his homeland has been decimated, and he begins to pray on behalf of his broken and wayward nation. He pleads to God for their restoration. For Nehemiah, the vision of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the nation of Israel, this monumental undertaking, it all began with a broken heart. I think all God-sized visions begin that way. That's the first lesson really that we learned about rebuilding last week. Nehemiah was heartbroken over the state of Jerusalem, and it drove him to his knees, not in despair, but in prayer. He spent months fasting and confessing his sin and the sin of his people and praying to God. He did all of that long before he took any steps or any action. Today, we begin in chapter 2. It's been four months since Nehemiah heard the news about the ruined state of the city of Jerusalem. And he goes to serve the king on this particular day, and he simply cannot hide the sadness that he feels about conditions back home. And the king notices. I mean, if your cupbearer, the person in charge of making sure you are not poisoned, is acting a little off, that's something you probably pay attention to. And so he asks Nehemiah, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I mean, you, you aren't ill, right, Nehemiah? I mean, you're okay over there? I mean, why, why are you so sad? Nehemiah has this response. He said, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, What is it that you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. And let's stop there for a moment. Nehemiah is scared, and rightly so. I mean, to be in the king's presence in his position as cupbearer and to look anything other than happy and content, well, that's probably dangerous, right? You don't want your your behavior to appear unusual to someone who is, you know, rightfully paranoid about someone trying to kill them. Uh, So, revealing his sadness in this way could have been significantly dangerous to Nehemiah, not only to his job, but to his life. So, it's understandable that Nehemiah pauses here for a moment, takes a deep breath, and says a short prayer. But at some point, you've got to offer more than just thoughts and prayers. Nehemiah knows that this is his opportunity to do something on behalf of his people. This is the moment he's been praying for. It's now or never. So he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, I answered the king if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Burdened by a desire to see Jerusalem rebuilt, Nehemiah steps out in faith. He speaks up. You know, when God breaks your heart about something, it will probably feel overwhelming, and I, I don't know what breaks your heart, but if, if it's in alignment with the way that God sees the world, it might be about people who are homeless, and it might just break your heart that there's no place for them on a cold winter's night, or, or people who are hungry, and and feeling the effects of not having enough food or or maybe it's about foster kids and wanting to support those families that are taking care of them i don't know what it is that your heart really is broken about but once you've seen that that heartbreaking thing you've really got a choice to make you can run and hide you can sulk and complain about how bad the conditions are. You can get resentful, or you can do what Nehemiah did. When God breaks your heart about something, it's time to step in and do something about it. Nehemiah was burdened with a heavy heart because he knew the task of rebuilding was a huge undertaking. It probably seemed impossible, but Nehemiah didn't let his fear prevent him from taking his shot. He spoke up. He leveraged the proximity and the trust that he had built with Artaxerxes so that he could make a huge ask. And how did the king respond? We read that, then the king with the queen sitting behind, beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. God answered Nehemiah's prayers. Miraculously, the king granted Nehemiah permission to return to Jerusalem. And when Nehemiah begins to sense the king's openness, I mean, he proceeds to just kick that door all the way down. He starts asking for everything he can think of. In fact, if you go back and look in chapter 2, he asks for letters of safe passage. He asks for building permits and plans. He asks for materials from the king's own forest. He even receives a small army for his protection from the king. I don't know what's crazier when I read chapter two of Nehemiah, that that this guy had the audacity to ask for all these things, or that Artaxerxes grants every request. Nehemiah got every item on his checklist, all of it. Now, here's a point where we need to pause, because there's a danger that I want to warn us about when we read this story. I don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking that if we follow Nehemiah's magical formula, you know, get heartbroken, begin to fast and pray, and then step out in faith, you know, that God will always respond by giving us exactly what we've asked for. That is not how God works. It's actually a heresy that's peddled by televangelists all the time, you know. If you believe it, you will receive it, you know. Just Name it and you can claim it. I'm sorry. I wish it was that simple, but it's not. God's ways are higher than ours. His wisdom is beyond our understanding. He sees things from a different vantage point than we do. That's not an intellectual cop-out. That's just the truth. There are going to be times when we believe we are sharing God's heartbreak about something and praying for an outcome. It does not materialize. Nehemiah didn't discover a magic formula for answered prayer. So, if that's not the lesson, then what are we meant to learn from this story? Let's keep reading and I'll tell you. In the second half of chapter two, Nehemiah finally makes it back to Jerusalem with this whole contingent and all these supplies. We read in verse 11 I went to Jerusalem and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. So when he gets back home after a few days to kind of recalibrate, Nehemiah heads out at night to assess the state of the city. That's how dangerous things are there. But he also keeps to himself what God has placed on his heart to do for Jerusalem, at least initially. See, I think he wanted a clear understanding of just what the scope of work was going to be before he began to get people's hopes up. But then, just the right time, Nehemiah called everyone together. The nobles, the officials, all the priests, he symbols them all. And we read in chapter two, verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Nehemiah had prayed for months. He prayed over the city. He assessed the conditions of the walls, the gates, the fortification. He knows the situation is dire and the task ahead is enormous. He doesn't sugarcoat anything when he speaks to these people. Kind of reminds me of the darkest moments of World War II when Winston Churchill issued a call to the British people, asking them to rise up in the face of great opposition. He made very plain to them the bleakness of their situation. He called the nation to unity and effort, spurring them into action with these famous words, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. After surveying the rubble of Jerusalem, Nehemiah issues a similar call to his people. You know very well the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall, Jerusalem, and in this disgrace gives no promise of fame or prosperity, no special accommodations for the wealthy or the powerful, just a call to come and get to work. I believe we're at a point like that for our church. We have been battered by this pandemic along with the rest of the world. It has taken its toll. One of the reasons we're studying the book of Nehemiah together as a church right now is because there are all kinds of stuff that needs rebuilding at Reunion. Our Sunday gatherings, our groups, our ministries, our leaders and staff have all been depleted during these last two years. There is work to do so that we can rebuild. And if you've been listening over the past month or so, you know that we have plans to merge Reunion South End and Reunion Quincy. It's going to happen at the end of this month. It's a decision we've been praying about and believe will give Reunion the best opportunity to flourish in the days ahead. We're rebranding our two new uh, locations. Somerville is going to be rebranded as Reunion North, and the newly merged location is going to be Reunion Metro. And in addition, we're rebuilding our community groups. Alex Mayfield is taking on an expanded staff role with us. And is working with our leaders and our groups to allow them to flourish in this season ahead. We're gonna get a new website. We've been working on that. We have new elders who are getting ready to finish their training process and come online as they're commissioned to join our current elder team in leading our church. I mean, in some ways, you could say we are relaunching reunion. There is a lot on the line. We've been praying, we've been seeking God's face, we've been preparing and planning for the future. We have been working to assess and listen and understand. And now we need you to share this burden with us. We want you to catch the vision for our church to help us see the entire Boston area transformed by the love of Jesus. We've got work to do. Will you step in and help us? Because here's the lesson I want all of us to learn From Nehemiah's story today. This is more than some ancient history lesson regarding the city of Jerusalem. It's more than just an interesting footnote about the diaspora of the Jewish nation. This story tells us something essential about how God works. God will always accomplish his purposes and plans, always. But what Nehemiah discovered And what you and I need to remember is that God invites us to join him in accomplishing that work. God will always accomplish his plans. He's inviting us to join in with him. It's not the other way around. We often want to accomplish our plans and purposes. And so we invite God to join us. God doesn't work that way. God will always accomplish his purposes and plans. But he's eager to have us participate with him. And that's one of the huge lessons we learned from this book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew that the task of rebuilding Jerusalem was not impossible because it was God's ordained work. So he invited the people to join him in it. God's vision for rebuilding Jerusalem's walls to rebuild Israel as a nation was all part of his redemptive plan. Nehemiah called them into action and they began the good work. Today, because of what Christ has done for us, we are being called to be part of a rebuilding and redemptive plan where Jesus is the chief cornerstone. I mean, for Nehemiah and the Israelites, I mean, they were using stones in a real wall. But scripture actually tells us that we, followers of Christ, are living stones. That's how it's described for us in 1 Peter. We read, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built to a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. You know, many of us probably consider ourselves saved by Jesus from our sins, from hell and damnation, and I don't want to suggest that any of that is untrue, but I do believe it's an incomplete picture of the salvation Jesus is extending to us. The better picture of the salvation Jesus offers goes beyond what we're saved from. It's also what we're saved toward. We're saved toward intimacy with God, reconnected to him, built into something beautiful because Jesus is at our foundation. We're saved toward God's purposes and plans in our own lives, yes, but also in the world. We're being restored from brokenness by his spirit living inside of us. We're being called to step in and love our neighbors, love our city. Howard Thurman explains it this way. I love this quote. He says, I love the gospel because it answers the question, what do I do with my life? Salvation God has offered us in Jesus is not a finish line. It's a starting line. It's the beginning of a rebuilding process. In Christ, we are joined together with God to help him accomplish his plans and his purpose. And here's one last cool aspect of this. In verse 18 of our text, Nehemiah says, I also told the people about the gracious hand of my God on me. God's hand, God's presence. It was with Nehemiah and the people. And this is an echo of other places in scripture where God delivers Israel by his mighty hand. You know, just this past holiday, the day after Christmas, Desmond Tutu passed away. He was the South African bishop and Nobel Peace Prize winner who persisted in persuading and, and pursuing a vision of ending Uh, the racist apartheid system in South Africa during the 80s and the 90s. And I love one of the ways he understood this concept. Here's what he had to say about it. He said, there is nothing the government can do to me that will stop me from being involved in what I believe God wants me to do. I do not do it because I like doing it. I do it because I am under what I believe to be the influence of God's hand. You hear that? he goes on to say, I cannot help it. When I see injustice, I cannot keep quiet. As Jeremiah says, when I try to keep quiet, God's word burns like a fire in my breast. And that's the difference between a merely good idea or inclination of our own and God's plans and purposes. If you are being sensitive in faith, you will begin to sense the influence of God's hand just like Desmond Tutu did, just like Nehemiah, to begin to see things not as they are, but as they should be, You begin to see the world the way God desires it to be. And that task might feel overwhelming, but when it's God's purpose and plan, he's in it with you, with his mighty hand. So will you join us as a church in praying for God to help us See the world the way he desires it to be. We ask him to break your heart, for the things that break his. We join us in praying for our city to experience the transformative love of Jesus. Pray for your neighborhood. Pray for the homes you drive by each day. Pray for the people you see on the streets in your, in your neighborhood. And, and just imagine what God could do through us as we respond to his invitation to join in his good work, just like he did for Nehemiah with his mighty hand. Imagine the lives changed by the good news of God's grace. Imagine the celebration as people turn their hearts toward him. And then let's get to work, just like Nehemiah and the people of Israel in rebuilding as God gives us energy and opportunity. Let's pray about that. Father, too often we have wanted to pursue our plans and purposes and invited you uh, to bless them and and make them work. But I want to learn from Nehemiah's story to seek your face and discover where your plans and purposes are leading. And, And then to accept your invitation to join you in that good work. It's a huge lesson for me, Father because I want my heart to be in alignment with yours. I want to I see the world the way that you do and have my heart broken for the things that break yours. Father, I want that for our church. And I want us, just like Nehemiah and the people of Israel, to get involved in this good work with you. So we ask for your spirit to give us wisdom and strength and courage to do just that. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.